0: About one-fifth of deaths in the United States take place in an intensive care unit. Even as discussions about palliative care, good deaths, and death with dignity become more commonplace, and Americans are gradually shifting back to the historical norm of dying at home. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Rothman, a professor of social medicine and history, and the director of the Center on Medicine as a Profession at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. Dr. Rothman has written a perspective article on the changing approaches to death and dying in the United States. Dr. Rothman, for centuries, people died at home, surrounded by their families. Before the rise of hospitals in this country, what role, if any, would physicians have played when one of their patients was dying?
1: What's so interesting is that patients, people, we should really use that language, died at home, surrounded by friends, family, clergymen to some degree, And last in the roster, and only occasionally at the bedside, was the physician. The custom was to guard the last moments on Earth, look carefully at how you died, not in terms of various symptoms, but really in terms of the grace with which you came to your end as a marker of the prospects that heaven Would be so to speak your next stop. The physician, certainly in the middle of the up to the middle of the 19th century, really probably till the very end of the 19th century, was ancillary to the process of death within the household. There's a wonderful illustration in the perspective of a deathbed scene in the NEJM issue. There's no doctor there, and if you look at artistic presentations of death and dying well through the 19th century. The physician, if he's there at all, is way in the background. These were family occasions. These were religious occasions. They were not the moment for interventions by the physician.
0: You write in your article about Koch's discovery of mycobacterium tuberculosis and then the establishment of sanatoriums. Did the fear of contagion, of tuberculosis or any other disease, change the way families and communities treated the sick and dying?
1: question. The rise of the sanitarium, exactly as you know, was a public health response to tuberculosis. It was public health departments that grew up in New York and Boston and other major cities around the fears of TB, and isolation was seen as protective. From the family perspective, however, the death in the sanitarium was undesirable and from the patient-slash-dying consumptive or dying-tubercular patient, also undesirable, there's a record of lots of residents escaping, leaving, quote, against medical advice. Public health people, of course, really dislike that. But nobody wanted to die in the loneliness, you know, of a TB ward in a sanatorium distant from home and family. You had an extraordinary tension between the family, contagion notwithstanding, wanted their kin at home, and, of course, the public health concern that the dying TB patient, you know, was a source of contagion.
0: You also discussed the death of soldiers on the battlefield during the Civil War and how difficult families found that to accept. To what extent do you think the difficulty was about the place of death and the isolation from family, and to what extent was it about the unnatural cause of death?
1: Again, a wonderful question. It's hard to know. The extraordinary book on civil war and death, of course, is the one written by Drew Faust, and she spends an enormous amount of attention on the family trying to, so to speak, obtain the body if it's just been left lying there in a mass grave or even on the battlefield ground. I think the families understood the horrors of war and that death would take place on the battlefield. But what they found, I suspect, it's hard to know, I suspect what they found even more troubling was the death on the battlefield was a lonely death. Drew Faust talks about this popular Civil War song, dying soldier asking his nurse, quote, be my mother till I die, as a kind of effort under the totally unnatural conditions of a battlefield and a wound that was going to bring about death to somehow or other unite with the family. We can't be certain whether or not it was death by the wound that was the primary agitating phenomena, probably not as much as the fact that the death was alone there would not be a proper burial. That was not the way you were to die. The Civil War was the example of, so to speak, how not to die.
0: For people who see family members dying at home as standard practice, death must have seemed just part of life. Today, of course, we here anyway, we count on medicine to forestall death as long as possible. What were some of the key turning points in the U.S. approach to dying that got us to this norm of medicalized death in the hospital?
1: the 20th century, and then strengthens till about the 1980s, maybe even into the early 1990s. The hospital, remember, in the 19th century was a kind of poorhouse, almshouse. house. The only people who went into the hospital were those who had no family, who had no friends, who could care for them. Now, the hospital was essentially a lodging place, and it was not a place of care Think, too, of where women gave birth. Always at home, not till the opening decades of the 20th century, do women begin to give birth in the hospital. It's hard for us in this modern period to recognize just how stigmatized the hospital was well through the 19th century, but it was. What changed it? Well, the hospital does become, as I think everyone now knows, the Temple of Science the place where curative medicine is delivered, it becomes the setting for new medical technologies, whether you're talking initially about the X-ray or eventually about MRIs or today about proton machines. The hospital becomes the repository of these extraordinary medical technologies that are going to do frequently awesome interventions to return a patient to health. And secondly, the hospital becomes the repository for specialists in which surgery was first. Eventually, it will be intensivists, hospitalists, in which the most extraordinary deliverers of care stand alongside these extraordinary machines, making the hospital, if you will, the front line in the battle against acute disease, deadly disease, preserving life even when death threatens through illness. So it's probably best understood as a combination of technology and expertise such that if illness is serious, in you go to the hospitals. There are urgent care centers springing up across American cities as we speak but those are for relatively minor illnesses, virus, bacterial, whatever have you. Let a patient come in with serious illness, and immediately that patient will be dispatched to the hospital.
0: Looking inside the hospital, tell us about the development of the intensive care unit. How did physicians and patients conceive of the purpose and the use of the early ICU
1: care unit, which grows up in the 50s, 60s, and then obviously becomes a hallmark of hospital care, is the epitome of technology and expertise. People may remember the iron lung, which in some ways was a little bit of a prototype for the ICU, but the ICUs in the 60s and 70s separated the patient from In the hospital, put them into intensive care units so that they could receive that kind of 24-hour-7 delivery of care by specially trained ICU nurses, reporting to intensivists as physicians, and the patients, now we say with a slightly derogatory tone, hooked up to machines, but put another way, the patient receiving support from these elaborate medical technologies that were able to breathe empty kidneys. I mean, you know, your readers know all of that. So it was, if you will, the specialization within the tertiary care hospital. What's important to remember, though, also was that in the beginning, the ICUs, maybe for convenience, maybe for fear of contagion, were closed off. Your readers may well remember the double doors that, you know, were very, very difficult for anyone to make their way through to enter an ICU. Family visiting was kept to an absolute minimum, if allowed at all. This was a very, very special center for the delivery of, so to speak, intensive care. And it did seal off patients from the family even at the last throes of life, the patient dying, the families were not always allowed into the ICU to be with the dying relative. The 50s and 60s, and I think this is very important for us to reckon with, death and dying was twice isolated. First, isolated within the hospital so that people in the community didn't witness, experience the dying process. And then within the hospital itself, segregated again into the intensive care unit. So you had, if you will, a kind of double segregation, a double isolation of the death process. 19th century, the family is around the bed at home. 1960s and 70s, the patient is not only within the family, but the family is excluded from the dying process. Very, very dramatic change. That, as I say, was almost certain to bring about a reaction.
0: And with all of that, tell us about the reaction. How did the backlash against the norm of high-tech hospital-based death take shape?
1: I think anyone who experienced that isolation of the dying patient left with a kind of disappointment, anger is too strong, The feelings that they were deprived of an opportunity to be with a family member as that family member died. And the emotion itself may well have spread widely enough to generate a reaction. There was also, of course, in this period, the rise of notions of hospice, of palliative care, beginning in England named Cicely Saunders, a marvelous proponent of hospice and palliative care. And what you had in a very, very interesting way was a joining of a popular sentiment of a disappointment with a professional, with the rise of a professional specialty like palliative care, so that the two join together quite successfully. Hospitals medicine, after all, is quite sensitive to public reactions their practices. If we think a little bit about childbirth, hospitals begin in a variety of ways to try to mirror the experience of the midwife delivering at home, Uh, maternity, birthing centers outside the community become the model, inside of the hospital. And I think in much the same way, hospitals began to reckon with the fact that what they were doing was not acceptable either, if you will, intellectually in light of hospice and palliative care, and emotionally to the family. So the ICU certainly doesn't go out of business, not at all, but it changes in many places its mode of operation. Instead of excluding the family, it brings the family in. Instead of seeing itself as apart from the hospital and the community, understand and make appropriate policies that stop the isolation of the death and dying process and begin to bring the family in. It's not easy. And the expertise and the attention don't always fit well with the hovering family. But I think hospitals have begun to reckon with the fact that they simply cannot isolate the patient and exclude the family as the patient.
0: Finally, do you think our concept of death and dying has changed in a fundamental and a lasting way through this?
1: I'm not certain. I note, and the authors in the NHAM note, that ICU visits in the last month of life, most patients in 29%, Americans still fight death and dying almost to the last. And I think I would italicize almost. I think what we have begun to learn is that we've got to, in terms of public views of this, we want to give medicine every opportunity to work its miracles, if you will, to postpone the inevitable death and dying. There is no decrease, I think, in expectations of what medicine can do at the end of life. That 29% figure speaks very, very loudly. And yet, saying that, It's also clear that at some point, patients and families understand the futility of the word used in medicine for a long time now spreading into the public, the futility of fighting when there's no chance to win the battle. That's the point where one wants a kind of days, weeks, whatever, of a chance to say goodbye, experience whatever one can experience depending on the illness in terms of relationships. So we've changed some. We're beginning, I think, to recognize there may well be a moment where one says enough, but we don't rush that moment. There is no decline in giving medicine every opportunity to do what it can do, the difference, a kind of understanding that medicine, too, has its limits.
0: Thank you, Dr. Rothman.